I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. A woman comes forward with startling allegations. Working as a young Senate aide 27 years ago, her boss sexually assaulted her pushing her up against a wall, reaching under her skirt, and penetrating her with his fingers. When she resisted, the boss expressed his annoyance, saying, Ah, oh, man, I heard you liked me. And then, pointing a finger at her, said, You're nothing to me, and walked away. It is the sort of claim that in the Me Too era of just a couple years ago would have caused an uproar. Only the boss being accused is Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. What should we make of the claims from the former aide, Tara Reid? And as more sources come forward to say that she told them about the allegation at the time, what is the responsibility of the news media to report on them? We'll discuss with Ryan Grimm, the Washington bureau chief of The Intercept, and one of the first reporters to take Tara Reid's claims seriously on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I think we should start out by saying this is a tough one. Uh, when I first heard about and read about the allegations of Tara Reid, I didn't know what to think. We'd all heard many things about Joe Biden over the years, including in more recent days his uh, over-touchiness with lots of young women and others in his orbit. But nobody had ever accused him of anything like this. So it seemed on its face something that was out there and yet how do you dismiss it? You at least have to interview the woman. You have to talk to other witnesses and friends who she might have confided with at the time to see if there is any independent or contemporaneous corroboration of what she has to say. And although there was some of that, there wasn't a whole bunch or main corroborator other than her brother was a friend who insisted on being anonymous that sort of made it a little bit tougher. But now this week, we have new reporting from Business Insider about two more friends uh, and associates who she told about these allegations about Biden at the time. They have come forward and are talking on the record. And I got to say, just based on the standards we usually use for stories like this, it's met a threshold that at least deserves to be taken seriously. Well, I, you know, I want to ask you, Isakoff, if it meets the standards 
that you held yourself to and that Newsweek held us to 20 years ago when we were investigating the Monica Lewinsky case. Before that, you were investigating Paula Jones. Look, these kinds of cases are incredibly complicated. First of all, it's about sex and sexual violence in this case, a sexual a charge for a sexual assault. So that is already incredibly charged. It is against the presumptive Democratic nominee in a very high stakes presidential race and running against a president who has been credibly accused of rape and sexual assault by many other women. But go ahead. Exactly. Well, yeah. And and um, look, I mean, if it happened, it was 27 years ago. And so people's memories, you know, that that can be a very uh, difficult issue. And so that's why the standards that you were held to and that you held yourself to all those years ago when we were investigating Bill Clinton, you know, I think are as relevant today as they were back then. So as I recall, the most, for you, the most important thing in reporting out those stories was whether the victim or the person making the accusations had told stories about what happened contemporaneously to other witnesses. And if those stories matched up with what that person was telling, would tell much later. And uh, so, you know, what do you think of this case in that light? Yeah, look, look, I I mean, this is something that cuts very close to me because, you know, I started down this road with the Paula Jones allegations that first emerged at a political event, the CPAC conference. Uh, She was surrounded by political enemies of Bill Clinton. So that was sort of good reason to have a healthy dose of skepticism to start with. But I interviewed her in detail and she told me uh, her story in a uh, spontaneous way that didn't have obvious holes in it. But yes, when I went out to Arkansas and tracked down friends of hers, family members, talked to them, I found a couple who, two of them in particular, who told me in very vivid detail that Paula Jones had recounted Bill Clinton's sexual predatory behavior towards her at the time that it happened, indeed on the day that it happened. And that influenced me because there was, as far as I can tell, no political motivation on these people to come forward. They had no skin in the game. They were not, they hadn't been coached by any of uh, Bill Clinton's enemies. They told me in a spontaneous, incredible way what they had heard at the time. And given that the Clinton campaign or the, the White House at that point, it's not the campaign, was insisting that none of this happened, none of it could have happened, that they uh, researched every allegation and claim that had ever been made about Bill Clinton. This had never come up. And therefore, this must have been invented in 1994 when Paula Jones first told her story at a press conference and not in 1991 when the event took place. So that made a big difference to me. And that's why I pursued and investigated the story. On the other hand, there was the question, and Len Downey, the uh, executive editor of the Washington Post at the time, wanted to know, you know, is this part of a pattern by Bill Clinton of making unsolicited sexual advances? Nobody had any doubts about Clinton's um, sexual philandering at that point, but that was not the issue on the table. It was whether there was... um, 
a pattern of sexual misconduct and um, harassment. And that proved tougher, you know, over time. I learned about Kathleen Willey, uh, who spoke about an event inside the White House, inside the Oval Office, when she said Clinton made unsolicited sexual advances towards her. And, of course, later on we learned about the um, story of Juanita Broderick, who well, but, had the but, most but, serious story of all. Yes, but, but there was more than a whiff of Bill Clinton's you know, sexual issues by the time you were course. investigating the Paula Jones case, right? We had Jennifer Flowers. He had a general yeah, reputation. No, no, that's already. what I'm saying. There was and never so, any question that that Clinton was a sexual philanderer, as much as he denied it. The issue was, you know, was he prone to making sexual advances against women who had no interest in right. being sexually advanced by but him? Of, that was the issue. But of course, uh, that but that, of course that raises a distinction between the. Clinton case and the Biden case, because in Biden's case, other than these stories about the sort of handsiness, which didn't, I think in the end, certainly made some people feel uncomfortable, but did not seem to rise to the level of kind of sexual inappropriateness. At least I think that's the way most people interpreted it. Joe Biden has never been accused of infidelities or overt sexual advances on women. And so you didn't have that same kind of pattern. This seems to be an isolated case. And so all the more reason to really kind of verify it as carefully as possible and to establish the credibility of the accuser, Tara Reid. You know, that is why the emergence of these two new witnesses is important, although not definitive. This is also coming at a time, we talked about this before, when Biden is the presumptive nominee. And a lot of the people who are in his camp ideologically, uh, liberals who would otherwise be really concerned about these kinds of allegations, are going to be pretty conflicted because at the end of the day, they're going to have the American people are going to have a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And so this becomes more than a an open and shut case. Did he do it? Did he not do it? It becomes a much more complicated political and moral calculation. Look, I think the stakes are higher, not so much because of Bill Clinton here, but I think the uh, the shadow of Brett Kavanaugh hangs over this and makes this a lot tougher for Democrats, particularly Democrats who are on that short list, Democratic women who are on that short list to be Biden's running mate. Look, with Brett Kavanaugh, we've talked about that on this show multiple times and I was always troubled by the fact that that standard that we used for Bill Clinton's accusers was their contemporaneous corroboration from the accuser was not the case with Brett Kavanaugh. There was nothing. There was no corroboration for Christine Blasey Ford's story about Brett Kavanaugh in high school. None of the people she named would confirm they ever saw or were even at the event that she talked about. She couldn't remember where it was. She couldn't remember exactly when it was. She couldn't remember how she got home. There were lots of holes in the story that you would want and, frankly, would not have made it under the standards I used for reporting on the Clinton accusers. But she, of course, came off as an extremely credible witness, and she was embraced by 
Senate Democrats, including Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, two who are on that Biden shortlist. And I don't know how they can credibly explain why they thought the allegations against Kavanaugh were grounds for keeping him off the Supreme Court, but this allegation against Biden should not keep him out of the White House. I think it's going to be a very tough one, and I think in the immediate political environment, this is going to be a bigger story than many people appreciate right now. Well, yeah, well, it, it is uh, awkward to say the least, I think, for some of those would-be running mates uh, to Joe Biden's. And of course, we know that he's made pretty much an ironclad commitment that he will be picking a woman to be his running mate. So, you know, I have to, will note that today that as we're taping this podcast, Hillary Clinton endorsed yeah. Uh, Joe Biden, one yeah. in a series of very prominent uh, Democrats endorsing the would-be nominee, including Bernie Sanders, uh, a little while ago. And um, they held a virtual town hall. It was very friendly and folksy. But, um, you know, I was watching, this was, uh, it was being uh, live-streamed on Twitter, and I was watching the comments on Twitter, and, you know, there was plenty of uh, positive comments about both the former uh, first lady and and uh, secretary of state and also for Biden. But uh, I would say it looked to me like about one out of three were things like, I believe Tara, believe women, I'm with her 100 percent. So that just gives you a little bit of a, of a taste of, you know, what this is going to be like uh, going forward. It's going to be messy in a lot of yeah. ways. And look, um, our guest, uh, Ryan Grimm, uh, he's the bureau chief for The Intercept. He's a progressive. I think it's fair to say he was widely seen as in Bernie Sanders camp. But I think he's done some very he's written some very serious, nuanced pieces about this. He's interviewed Tara Reid. He believes that the story needs to be taken seriously. And in terms of the political fallout, God knows how this, you know, how this ultimately uh, plays out. I do think it's worth noting that looking at my Twitter feed before we began the taping and uh, here's a tweet from a woman named Claire Sandberg, who identifies herself on Twitter as having been the national organizing director for Bernie Sanders. And she writes, now is the time to deal with the ramifications of Tara Reid's accusations, not this fall. There is simply no moral justification for Biden to continue as the presumptive nominee out of respect for survivors and for the good of the country, he should withdraw from the race. Now, that's an isolated comment from a Bernie Sanders supporter, but one wonders, as this story continues, how much traction that argument might get. Yeah, I think it will get some. I will say, however, that we do have an ability as a, as a body politic to absorb these kinds of stories and move on, whether we should or shouldn't. We have done that over and over again. Clarence Thomas is still on the Supreme Court. Bill Clinton is a respected elder statesman. Brett Kavanaugh is newly on the Supreme Court. And so I wouldn't put a whole lot of money betting on, on Joe Biden to get out of this race. Now, it is possible that at some point the pressure will build. And while he may not give a full-throated apology, you might hear him say, offer some concession that Tara Reid, you know, clearly remembers something 
and he doesn't remember anything uh, that she's describing, but he thinks that she should be heard and wishes her the best. Uh, so it'll be- I, I doubt he really wishes that she should be heard. Uh, and it is worth noting that as we speak, uh, none of the uh, uh, TV networks have interviewed her. I think the only thing we can say for sure is we're going to get a lot of shit for doing this podcast, but we're used to that. So um, let's get on with it and bring in uh, Ryan. We now have with us Ryan Grimm, the D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Ryan, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be here, Michael. So a lot to talk about here, and I want to start with your own reporting on this and how you got into it. Tell us how you first learned about Tara Reid's allegations about Joe Biden and how you processed what you were going to do with what you had learned. Sure. So in March, someone who doesn't want to be named, who is not involved in politics, reached out to me through Twitter DMs. Not not somebody that I, I knew, but she had read my book and I followed her on Twitter. And so it moved from I have open DMs, which everybody should, but, you know, it can be a sewer in there. And so you you miss a lot of things. So this was one that went into my regular inbox and I saw it. She said, I've been in contact with a woman who's trying to talk to a reporter. I suggested you. Her name's Tara Reid. She says that, you know, she came forward a year ago with uh, some sexual harassment allegations about Joe Biden. She says there's more to the story that she's been trying to tell for a long time now. Can I put you guys in touch? And I said, sure. And so pretty soon after that, we were talking. By this time, this would have been March 8th, 9th, 10th, around that time that we were talking, that we were originally talking. The primary was effectively over by then. There, you know, there were still elections to be had, but Sanders had been, had been stomped on, on Super Tuesday. And the week after that was the one that was, you know, set up for, not, not set up for him to lose, but he, you know, a bunch of states where he was destined to do poorly. And he was, on a glide path to to defeat by by that time. And so, you know, we spoke for a while and I talked to her, you know, talked to people close to her, you know, researched her background and particularly looked into the fact that she had reached out to the organization Time's Up to get help coming forward. Time's Up was founded at, at the height of the Me Too movement. The biggest GoFundMe in the site's history raised at 23 or 24 million dollars from just regular people all over the country who wanted there to be an organization that was there to support survivors who wanted to come forward and, and, and face the gauntlet. And they told her that they were unable to help her because the person that she was accusing was a candidate for federal office and they are a 501c3. And that struck me as newsworthy as it was, that's probably not what people would have thought as they were creating the organization, that they were giving money to create this institution that wouldn't be able to take on politicians as is long that, as they're running uh, uh, for re-election. Ryan, can you just explain that? I mean, is that is that really true that it would be a tax violation and therefore they could not help someone bring forth an allegation against a, a federal politician? Officeholder. A federal, a federal, yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's really true. So you could find, you can probably find a lawyer to tell a nonprofit that it can't even mention the name of a 
federal office holder. But that is not the kind of general understanding of tax law when it comes to this area, according to the tax law experts that I interviewed. In general, the idea is that as long as you have a set of criteria for what your nonprofit does, then if it incidentally interacts with federal office holders, then that's fine. You don't have to draw a line and carve out the behavior of all men who are running for federal office. In other words, if your criteria is, you know, we represent women who have allegations against people in male-dominated institutions, then as long as all of those criteria are met, tax law would say you have no problem, you know, going after somebody who's running for federal office. Like that's that's the more standard take on the question and the Time's Up's reading of it would would be e- extraordinarily conservative one. Do you think that was a pretext not to pursue a case that might not be in line with their political or ideological views, or they're just very careful? You know, the, you know, they've been going after Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein was, you know, he was a he was a hardcore Democrat. They've, you know, they've they've gone after people who align with with them before I, you know this is obviously a much different case because it's not just about Joe Biden it's about defeating Donald Trump but I don't know I really have no way of knowing it could be that they didn't believe the account and maybe we're trying to let her down gently with a technical legal yeah. technicality it could be any number of things what was your assessment of Tara Reid after you talked to her to me her allegations sounded credible and particularly after speaking with her brother and her friend as well. It sounded doubly, triply uh, credible. And also, you, you know, you have to remember or try to try to recall what, what the time was like. You know, this is the 80s and 90s in the, in the United States Senate. And I think like the way that it's often talked about today, well, the way that her allegations talked about today is, you know, Joe Biden is a rapist or, you know, Joe Biden, you know, sexually assaulted a woman in a hallway, which and so that gets that gets people dug in and they say, well, Joe Biden is not a rapist. But if you think about the culture of the Senate in the 80s and 90s, you know, it, it was a kind of freewheeling, misogynistic place. You know, we have the term rape culture for a reason. And the way that Tara tells the story and told the story to me is that he thought that he had some level of consent. Like he thought that he even said like afterwards, I thought you were into me. I, you know, I heard that you liked me or I thought that you liked me. And he was angry when she told him no. And when she told him no, you know, he stopped. And so, you know, he thought that he had a green light. That's a much easier thing to understand and conceptualize happening in that era than Joe Biden jumping out of the bushes and raping somebody who's walking by. And so I think the way that kind of we talk about it today, you know, doesn't take into account what the culture was in, in 1993 in, in the Senate. But when you do understand that, you say, well, yeah, that this is certainly something that that could have happened. And not only that, you know, she told her mother, she told her a friend and she told her brother. Her mother has passed away, but both her friend and her brother recalled their mother being part of these conversations. And so even though her mother isn't around to corroborate that she was told in real time, there were there were two other witnesses, including Tara, who were there to say, yes, she did. She did say this. 
So, Ryan, among the issues here that people have pointed to is, first, that when she first speaks out last year, she talks about how Biden had made her uncomfortable with the way he touched people and her. It wasn't until this year that she added on the allegation of sexual penetration. And just just to be clear, we should remind the listeners exactly what she now says happened, which is that she was supposed to bring something to Biden and he pushes up her, her against the wall. Please correct me if I get any detail wrong and sexually accosts her and penetrates her uh, with his finger, I believe. So I guess the question is, you know, why was that not the story to begin with? Why did the story evolve? Well, so a couple of things on that. It, you know, she added it. It's true to say that she added it, but she added it publicly, which is a key distinction. You know, she had already told, you know, not just the people I mentioned, but as we now know, she had told her neighbor after she moved back to California, 1995 or 96, about it. So it's not that her story has changed over the 20 plus years. It's that the amount that she has shared publicly has changed. And that's actually a extraordinarily common phenomena when it comes to survivors coming forward. When she first told her story, it was in response to watching a View episode, she told me. And you can go back and find that episode. It's it's when the ladies in The View are responding to Lucy Flores's allegation that Joe Biden had kind of rubbed her shoulders, stroked her hair, and then planted a very long kiss on the back of her head and then sniffed her hair like just before she went up on stage to give a speech. And they were they really come at her pretty hard in that interview. And she thought to herself, you know, this is this is unfair. Lucy should not be out there alone. And so she she spoke to her uh, local paper in Northern California and the local paper did a fairly quick interview and a fairly short piece about her new allegation. And she didn't feel like telling that reporter the entire story is what she has told me, that at that time she felt comfortable going forward with her harassment allegation because it was to support Lucy Flores. She had complained about it in the office at the time. She knew she'd told a lot of people about it. So she felt like it was something that was just a slam dunk, that nobody was going to try to destroy her life or make her a, a national light, lightning rod over and it wasn't long after that that she started making attempts actually to reach out to other reporters. So it's not as if she that her kind of March inquiry to me was her first. Like there were there were many over the period of months before that just, you know, it's difficult to for people to get a hold of journalists and and it's uh, even harder for them to get a hold of them and convince them to spend their, you know, their scarce time investigating something. So, Ryan, in trying to assess your credibility, clearly the most important thing is is corroboration. And as you and others have now done, finding people who she told these stories to uh, contemporaneously or near contemporaneously. But there are other things that reporters do, which I'm sure you have, which is to look at other potential red flags. And I want to ask you about a couple of them that are out there that people have written about and how you kind of assess those. So one of them is that she had repeatedly praised Biden on Twitter. 
including for his work on combating violence against women, which in the context of what happened to her might strike people as might raise some eyebrows. And then the reasons, kind of differing reasons that she gave for why she left the job with Biden. And one of them was, and this is, this is another issue that a lot of people have written about, she talked about the reckless imperialism of America and that touches on some of the things that she's written about praising Vladimir Putin and her love for Russia. So presumably you looked at those, some of those issues. What, what did you make of them and how do they fit into the larger story of her credibility? Right. So the first two are, are worth thinking about, but not, not for long. Like the, the kind of the politics around the survivor community have fairly well established that it is a common pattern among victims to praise their not I shouldn't say common it is not uncommon for a victim to to praise their their abuser over the course of many years um, mm-hmm. and so that part is in the era where, that we're in is isn't even that much of a red flag for people who are kind of embedded in this community changing stories like that that's another one that the survivor community kind of dismisses out of hand that is that people say all sorts of things publicly to explain things that can only otherwise be explained by the thing that they're not coming forward with publicly yet sure but in this particular case one of the things that she said was that she left her job because of the reckless imperialism of america and that relates to Another issue, which is the praise of Putin and Russia. So talk about that. Yeah. So now you get into a more, more to me, what's more interesting territory, which is the kind of eccentricity of, of a source. So, you know, is somebody's politics and, and worldview, you know, so eccentric that it starts to call into question their, their ability to relay uh, facts in a, in a responsible and trustworthy way. And so that claim right there is not credible. Like, she, you know, she'd worked as an intern, I think, for Leon Panetta and then spent less than a year working for Joe Biden. And, you know, the, the idea that American imperialism was the reason that she left the United States, that's, that's not credible. That, that has to be understood as, you know, something that she's, that she's saying in the context of this period of time where she's, she's writing these peons to to Russia and to and to Vladimir Putin. And so then then the question is, does doing something like that fatally undermine your your credibility? Does it does it make it impossible for you to be somebody who can stand up and and present an allegation? And and I think that maybe these things are on a spectrum. But to me, this country is is full of people with weird politics. Northern California is especially full of no offense to people in Northern California. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of relatives <laughs> there, and I, uh, yeah. I, can, I can attest you're, to that. You're hidden close to <laughs> yeah, home and, with and, Clyman, you know, she, but, uh, she told yeah. me that she went down a YouTube rabbit hole watching Oliver Stone interviews with Putin and, and you know, propaganda and revisionist politics around uh, the U.S. relationship with Russia and what, and what Putin was doing. Uh, a lot of Chomsky at the time talking about imperialism. Her mother was a longtime left-wing and feminist activist uh, who, who raised her in a politics of skepticism around American exceptionalism and around American imperialism. So that, and that I 
confirmed with her brother, and you know that you know, that's well established. So she was already kind of primed. And then she's living in Northern California, and she's going down YouTube rabbit holes. There are plenty of people in this in this country who, if you know, the mainstream media tells them one thing, then that's enough evidence right there that the opposite must be true. And so you can get to a place where you're writing stuff like that. And, you know, people go through phases. She's not in that phase anymore. I'm sure, you know, she was up until fairly recently. I'm sure she wishes she hadn't gone through that phase because it's it's just a almost a satire of, of a credibility question. You know, when we first talked, she said, you know, when I came out in April, I got attacked by people for being a Putin lover and a, and a Russian spy. And I laughed, and you know, because it's in the middle of all of the, the hysteria. And I, and I thought maybe it was some overblown hysteria. And the, the idea that she's a spy, of course, is ridiculous. Spies don't, you know, write medium posts about about Vladimir Putin that would, that would blow their spy cover but when I read the piece I was like oh wow this is you actually you actually did say you actually did write some quite not just Mueller is on a wild goose chase but that Vladimir Putin is a is a heroic uh, figure so but then then the question is you know how does that relate to her ability to you know credibly relay allegations and then you so then you have to go back to what corroborating evidence there is. And, and to me, the balance was on the side of the credibility of the allegations. And we should point out that you know the reason we are doing this now is because more corroboration has come forward. Rick McHugh writing for the Business Insider, McHugh being the guy who worked with Ronan Farrow on his uh, groundbreaking investigations into sexual assault, found two additional people, uh, one who lived next door to Reed in the mid-90s, saying this happened and I know it did because I remember talking about it with her and another source who worked with Reed in the uh, in the office of a Cal- California state senator in the 1990s said she recalls Reed complaining at the time that her former boss in Washington had sexually harassed her. So to me, the so the question is as much a media story here as anything else, which I thought you sort of uh, addressed uh, in a very compelling way in the email you sent out to your readers. And I want to talk about that. Like, what is the media's responsibility here? How to handle a uh, allegation like this against a candidate who is running against a president who has been credibly accused of rape and lots of other sexual assaults. How do you balance that? And also in the aftermath of the Kavanaugh confirmation controversy, in which it seems to me on its face right now, there is more independent corroboration for what Tara Reid has to say than ever there was for Christine Blasey Ford. So when we're Right. It is an interesting media question. And, you know, for me personally, the way I would think about it is, given the contest that, that the media is covering now between between Biden and Trump, I, as the bureau chief of The Intercept, would certainly not assign a team of reporters to go digging through Joe Biden's past to find evidence of, of sexual predation or assault or, or, or something like that. It would 
Why not? Wouldn't that be important? So because we have a fairly small team, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic and a hist world historic economic crisis. And there's just so much else that needs to be covered. So it wouldn't be the place that we that we direct like a, a, a serious amount of resources without having some sense that there was going to be something that would those efforts would yield. Now, on the other hand, if you get a credible tip that something like that exists, then I do think that there's an obligation to report it out and, and to see where the to see where the story takes you. I was uh, struck by what you wrote uh, this morning uh, when you said to the question of why on earth would you be reporting on this when we're facing a deadly global pandemic in the midst of a presidential election of existential importance? As Biden likes to say, here's the deal. I decided early in my career that I would never suppress a story if the only reason I were doing so was concerned about its political implications. If you do that, you're no longer a journalist. Right. And so one of the reasons or, or one, one way I have kind of dismissed the kind of ethical calculus around the question is to say that, look, I don't know what the consequence of my reporting is going to be. You know, the, none, of, none of us do. We can know that stories that we're about to publish will have impact, but we can't choose what that impact is going to be. And oftentimes, when we try to play God, we end up doing it as well as a lot of those third-rate Greek gods and goddesses did, you know, backfire and blow up in their faces. In fact, you know, a lot of the Biden defenders over the past month who've been relentlessly trying to undermine the, the credibility of Tara Reid actually ended up inspiring her friend in Georgia to decide to go forward. You know, she she initially had no, no interest in, in coming forward to be on the record. She, as she has said, she is a Biden supporter and she's still a Biden supporter. She's called herself a very strong Democrat, but she said she couldn't watch her friend being torn apart like that and so decided that she wanted to come forward. So in other words, the, the very people who thought they were helping Biden by coming after Tara and undoubtedly running up against their own politics around issues of gender equity and sexual assault actually ended up hurting Biden by bringing forth this additional witness and who knows what else to come forward. So that's that's a perfect example of how you don't know exactly what the outcome of of your actions are going to be. So you should just be guided by some general principles and go forward with that. So I think there's a million decent reasons to decide not to write a story because there are so many stories to write. You can't you can't write them all. But if the my point is that if the only reason that you're shying away from a piece is that you're worried about its political implications or its political consequences, then you've got to do the story. Yeah, but Ryan, you um, you kind of take this one step further, which is uh, which was very interesting to me. Also, in your letter to your readers, you talk about this story in the context of the vote that's coming up in the presidential election, and you talk about voting. You say it's uh, it's uh, an instrumental act. Uh, it's it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself, and therefore you say it's not ethically and intellectually inconsistent for a person to say that a they believe Tara Reid and b they're going to vote for Biden in order to oust Trump. Why did you want to say that to your readers? I try to never pretend that my 
reporting exists in some sort of a vacuum. You know, a lot of a lot of pieces that you read, you know, they're just kind of dropped into some place that's supposed to be a part of space and time. Whereas I want to always acknowledge that the reporting that I'm doing and that everybody's doing is linked inextricably with the reality that we're living in. And so, and also the, you know, the newsletter that I write is a, is kind of a place where I'm kind of sharing thoughts about the stories that I'm writing as well. My readers know that I'm, you know, my politics are generally progressive, that I think, you know, Trump should, you know, probably belongs in prison rather than you know, in the White House. Uh, I really haven't made much of a, a secret of that. So I had no doubt that a lot of my readers would be wondering, well, what on earth are you doing then? You know, publishing stories that are that may end up, you know, in their view, helping Trump, you know, who I've been critical of for four or five years or or whatever. So I was partly trying to save myself time answering the uh, hundreds of um, angry replies that I knew I was going to get. It, it ended up being futile. I can uh, I can only imagine. Quick follow up, but you are saying kind of implicitly that people should make utilitarian calculations uh, when they vote, and that it may be acceptable to vote for someone who has assaulted someone 27 years ago in a, you know, in a somewhat violent way, because the alternative is worse. Well, uh, you know, I'm somebody who's on the left. And so, you know, we've been asked to do that at the ballot box for hundreds of years. (laughs) Uh, You know, and so you're not just asking them to do that. You're asking somebody who, you know, who played a lead role in uh, launching the war in Iraq, which has killed maybe, what, a half a million people in Iraq and destabilized Mm -hmm. the region and was one of the most tragic wrong turns in world history. And this was not somebody who just voted the wrong way at the last minute. He was holding hearings, pumping this up in the the summer before. And so, right, to say that that... So the only way you can think about voting for a person like that is if you understand voting to be an instrumental act, a means to an end, rather than you know, an expression of morality in itself. You know, another element of this is how it plays into Biden's decision for a vice presidential running mate. And um, Rebecca Treister has a uh, interesting piece uh, suggesting this is going to be a problem for any of the women he is considering. It seems to me that it's a most serious matter for Kamala Harris and uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, because of their prominent roles on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Kavanaugh hearings, and that I would think they would have a hard time answering why Blasey Ford's allegations against Kavanaugh, dating from time in high school, should have been disqualifying for him to be on the Supreme Court, but the allegations of Tara Reid uh, shouldn't affect Joe Biden becoming president of the United States. What do you make of that argument that this is going to be a problem, particularly for Harris and Klobuchar, if they are um, potentially on the short list for vice presidential running mate? Which they are. That's an interesting point that they were. They probably wish that they were not on that committee right now, because you're right. There are there are going to be a lot of clips of them saying that, you know, you know, that, that they can and they're going to be pressed relentlessly, as as Rebecca puts in her piece, to punish for the sins of the man on the ticket. All of the candidates, prospective candidates, probably are somewhere on record on the Kavanaugh 
question in a way that will be difficult to square with this one. Elizabeth Warren probably Senate floor speech or maybe at a on television. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer uh, may may have dodged dodged it if she kept a low profile. Although she was running for office at the time, she was running for governor at the time, so I'm sure she spoke out about it. Though they'll, they'll probably all have video clips, but you're right that their their particular prosecutions because they were on the committee or are heightened and especially in the public mind. Yeah. And getting back to the media question, because both the New York Times and the Washington Post have now done stories in very neutral, carefully worded ways that laid out Tara Reid's allegations without really tipping off to the reader whether we should believe the claim or not. Ruth Marcus, uh, who wrote a book about Kavanaugh and was quite sympathetic to Christine Blasey Ford, said she believed her, ended up saying, I need to take this seriously, but then writes, but I don't believe Tara Reid. And I think as you uh, pointed out before when we were speaking that none of the TV networks neither the major TV networks or cable other than Fox have covered this. Is there a responsibility for the media to more aggressively investigate this and to tell the reader at the end of the day whether the evidence points in her direction or not? So what Tara was telling me just today is that she she actually hadn't gotten any invites for any on-camera interviews from any of the any of the networks other than Fox News. And she has said, you know, she doesn't want to elect Donald Trump. Um, she's not eager to go on Fox News or talk to the conservative outlets, but those are those are the ones that are being the friendliest to her and willing to give her space on platforms. You know, the, certainly the, the media definitely should be careful about giving the impression that there's some reason that they're not treating this in the same way that people suspect they would treat it if if the accused was a Republican, giving a little bit of fodder to that to that idea of the, the media out there. People like well, Donald Trump Jr. having a field day. Yeah, well, a little rich for him to be having a field day over this, uh, to say the least. But, uh, you know, such is the nature of American politics uh, that if it helps your team, uh, you're all for using sexual allegations like this. Uh, if it doesn't, you you don't and you uh, dispute them. Are you, uh, I guess, final question, Ryan? I mean, are you continuing to investigate? Are you continuing to um, report on this? I, I am not as like a full-time job, but, you know, I'll continue to follow leads here and there. If, you know, if I sense we've gotten to a place where the court of public opinion has, has ruled, then you don't need a 10th, 11th, or 12th corroborating witness. Soon it becomes a question of, okay, like this, something very, something close to this happened or this happened. And now the question is, what do Democrats do about it? What does Joe yeah. Biden do about it? Rather than continuing to find more and more corroboration that uh, she's, she told people about it, you know, at various times in her life. Because, you know, at some point, it, if you don't want to believe her, you can you can say that she was sitting on her stoop in 1995 lying to her neighbor about it. 
Ryan, I have a one last question for me, which is you say no, no need to necessarily get 15 corroborating sources for this particular incident. But does your reporting suggest to you that it is an isolated episode or is there reason to report out other possible examples of this kind of conduct and to show whether there's a a pattern. Uh, no one seems to have been able to show that so far, but do you think this is isolated? Uh, if you think of it as him aggressively pursuing what he thought was a, a green light, then that that's a much different mm-hmm. fact, pat, fact pattern to pursue than looking for straight on violent sexual assaults. But without without a whole lot of additional reporting, I wouldn't want to go much yeah. further on that. And that may be why Tara Reid is asking for an apology. She has not said he should drop out of the race. Right. The whole time she is, that's what she, that's what she has asked for, an acknowledgement that, that she was wronged and that, and that uh, he's sorry for it. Ryan, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, you've certainly uh, driven the conversation on a story that um, we don't know how it's going to play out, but does seem to be getting uh, more and more traction and is likely to be talked about for some time. So congratulations for doing that, and uh, thanks for coming on Skullduggery. Well, thanks for having me on. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to The Intercept's D.C. Bureau Chief, Ryan Grimm, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.